So here we are in episode four of our series called Text. The reason that I have been so excited about doing this series and planning it now for more than a year is that I, I think that it really helps our understanding and then our application of truth. I believe that it will also prepare us well to move us forward in our mission of breaking down barriers and opening doors. The Bible, unfortunately, stands as a barrier to many in terms of faith. The way that we have talked about the Bible has helped that barrier, and I think that it's time that we partner together to break that barrier down. The reason that this series helps us to do that is because most of us know some Bible stories. And if you grew up in church, you probably know a lot of Bible stories. And if you didn't grow up in church, um, you know just enough Bible stories to know that you don't believe the Bible stories, possibly. Um, or, or, or maybe you grew up in a church where the, the, well, with the Bible stories, and then as you became an, an adult, you thought, wait a minute, that stuff? Well, that, that couldn't have happened. And part of the problem is, while many of us know some Bible stories, very few of us know the story of the Bible. And I'm convinced that knowing the story of the Bible or knowing how we got the Bible is almost as important as knowing what's in the Bible. Because if you don't know the story of the Bible, it's easy to discount the stories in the Bible. And one of the things that makes this so challenging for us is the way that we got our Bibles is not the way that the world got the Bible. By the time you got your Bible as a child or maybe as an adult, it was already chaptered and versed, mapped and wrapped. But that's not how the world got the Bible. Jesus didn't write the Bible, okay? But if it weren't for Jesus, there would be no B-I-B-L-E. Because the story of the Bible does not begin with Genesis. The story of the Bible actually begins with Jesus. And here's why I say that the story of the, of the Bible actually begins with Jesus. In the first century, when Jesus' tomb was found empty, and then Jesus was seen, and, and his cowardly followers, who ran when he was arrested, showed back up in the streets of Jerusalem, and they said, He's back! He's alive from the dead. And thousands of Jewish people in the very area where Jesus was arrested and crucified, in that area of Judea, specifically the city of Jerusalem, embraced Jesus as their Savior. And then the church launched. The church began. Before that, it didn't exist. And suddenly something was true that wasn't true before. Suddenly there was an interest in documenting the life and the words and the works of Jesus, because if Jesus had stayed dead, we probably would have never heard of Jesus, because there would have been no church, there would be no Christianity, and consequently, there would have been no Bible. That's why I say the story of the Bible actually begins with the resurrection of Jesus. Well, eventually the Apostle Paul, who we will talk about in episode 5, and some other people left Jerusalem, they left Judea, they left that region of the world, and they went to major port cities all around the Mediterranean basin. And they began to share the story of Jesus. And the fact that God had done something 
in the world through his son and had raised him from the dead to punctuate what he had claimed about himself and what he had said about the world. Men began to document the life of Jesus, and if there had been no resurrection, there would have been no need to document it. Uh, Luke, a doctor from the first century, tells us that many people, and examples of the many people would Matthew, Mark, Luke himself, and John sat down and attempted to document the life of Jesus. We have four accounts of the life of Jesus, two prepared by Jews, two prepared by Greeks. They, then eventually, the Apostle Paul left that region of Judea and Galilee and began to spread the word about Jesus and his teachings to Gentiles, like you and me, all around the Mediterranean Rim. That's where the story picks up from last time. Now, when Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, became enamored with a particular Jew, Jesus, they became enamored with the sacred texts of the Jews, what we'll call the Hebrew Bible, but what Jesus and, and the other people in the first century referred to as the law and the prophets. Gentile Christians early on in the, in the late first century and especially in the second century embraced these texts as scripture. But here's where the storyline gets complicated, okay? They did not embrace the Hebrew Bible or the Jewish Bible as Jewish scripture. They embraced this scripture as Christian scripture because while Gentiles were certainly interested in the Jewish scripture, they were not the least bit interested in the Jewish religion. Their interest in the Jewish text was not historical or cultural. And I'll explain why. During this period in history, there were two or three things uh, going on. First of all, the Jewish temple had been destroyed. And the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders specifically, priests, rabbis, people like that, the scholars, they were all trying to figure out, so what do we do now, right? How do we practice religion with no temple? So Judaism took on a distinctly different flavor at the end of the first century, and rabbinic Judaism was born. Second thing going on was that the Jews periodically, between the end of the first century and all the way through the third century, the Jews would side with Rome. They would side with the empire against Christians. So there was a built-in conflict between Christians who were using Jewish scripture and the Jews who would say, hey, that's not your scripture. It's our scripture. And you're some sort of knockoff, spin-off Jewish cult. And frankly, you're giving us a bad name. You keep that up and you have the potential to ruin our really great relationship with the empire. So the Jewish leaders sometimes sided with Rome. Third thing that made the relationship so difficult that was that the Gentiles didn't want to be Jewish. From their perspective, the Jews were a little bit odd. They wouldn't work one day of the week. They wouldn't eat certain things like ever. Um, they wouldn't come over. They wouldn't invite you over. They wouldn't let you marry their daughter. They wouldn't let their daughters marry your sons. And so the Jewish communities, even outside of Judea and Galilee, they were very exclusive communities because they wanted to be, we would say, kosher. 
They wanted to obey the laws given to them in the Hebrew Bible, and it was very difficult to be a good Jew and to mix too much with Gentiles. So there was a lot going on at the end of the first century and into the second century. (coughs) Consequently, the church, the Christians, they took the book, they didn't take the religion. They took the book, they didn't take the culture. Their interest was not historical or cultural. Gentiles' interest in this book was Christological, and that's a brand new party word for some of you. They went into the Hebrew Bible, not looking for the Hebrews. They went into the Jewish scriptures, and they're not looking for the Jews. They went into the Hebrew Bible looking for Christ, looking for Jesus, and they found him everywhere. They found him in places where he was not. They found all kinds of texts that were, they decided were about Jesus. And of course, the Jewish scholars and leaders were just appalled that these non-Jewish people who couldn't even read Hebrew would do such damage to their text in the way that they interpreted it. But the Gentiles actually rejected the Jewish interpretation of the Jewish text. And here's why. Their thought went like this. The church fathers said, look, you Jewish people, you missed your own Messiah. You, you didn't understand your own prophets. We want your text, but we are not interested in your interpretation of your own text because you missed your Messiah. So at the end of the first century, this is after the apostle Paul, Peter, all of Jesus' apostles were gone. Because, you know, it's interesting to know that the book of Romans, the apostle Paul, he's very specific, right? He addressed the Gentiles right then, and he said to us, Gentiles, hey, you Gentiles, don't get so uppity, all right? Don't think that you're something that you're not. Don't go having a bad attitude towards us Jewish people, right? If it wasn't for us Jewish people, there would be no Messiah for you to embrace. He warned the Gentile world not to disenfranchise themselves from the Jewish people, not to be critical of the Jewish people, but instead or really, in spite of that, I should say, there was conflict early on heading into the second century. So what happened is the early Christian church took the Hebrew text and they essentially baptized it, Christianized it, and allegorized it. And unfortunately, for the most part, they downplayed or completely ignored, but certainly didn't teach sequentially the fabulous gritty, epic history of the Hebrew people. Because the Old Testament, thats the Jews called it the Law and the Prophets, we call it the Old Testament. The Old Testament chronicles God's redemptive, sequential activity in history in the world. In Genesis, as we saw last episode, God shows up at the beginning as creator. But very quickly in the book of Genesis, he takes off his creator hat and he puts on his founder hat. God begins founding a nation in order to bring redemption to the world. He begins with a man that has no children named Abram. Just a little bit into the story, his name gets changed to Abraham, and boom, now you know who he is, right? Through Abraham, he births a nation with an international, multi-generational purpose. A nation that would eventually be enslaved in Egypt. 
a nation that would eventually be enslaved by a superpower, by a pharaoh who considered himself related to the gods, close to the gods, that at the right time, God sent his servant Moses, the savior Moses, so to speak, into that environment. And he goes to Pharaoh and he says, you know what he says, you are to let my people go. You, you, you got to let God's people go. He, and he's speaking on behalf of God, Yahweh, the Jewish God, and spoke to Pharaoh in the only terms of Pharaoh could understand. Violence and power. And at the end of this epic story, so epic that they should really make a movie about it, or maybe 10. And at the end of this epic story, he freezes people and they leave Egypt wealthy. The text says that they plundered the nation. The people were so happy for the Hebrews to leave, they mounded on them uh, treasures. Moses leads them to Mount Sinai. And there, God establishes the Sinai covenant with his people. He says to the ancient Hebrews, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. You're going to be separate from all of the surrounding nations because I have a very very specific plan for you. Through you, my people, we, you, are going to go out and bless the entire world. He said to them, here are the rules. Here are the stipulations. Here are the laws. Here is the covenant. Basically, that's a contract. And he said to them, I'm going to give you your own land. And when you get to this land, if you obey me, I'm going to prosper you. But, if you disobey me, then for the sake of the world that's watching, I'm going to have to punish you. If you take on the customs and the religious tra traditions of the surrounding nations, if you embrace the morality of the surrounding nations, if you embrace the polytheism of the surrounding nations, I'm going to give you to the surrounding nations so that you get a really good, up-close look at that. So that when you repent, I can bring you back into the land. It was conditional in the sense that God would bless them if they obeyed. It was unconditional in the sense that they would always be his chosen people with a very specific agenda in mind. All of this was outlined at Mount Sinai when Moses came down, not with 10 commandments, but with 613 commandments. Wow, right? You only ever really hear about the 10 highlighted, but wowzers! 613. Okay, so I want to talk about those commandments for just a moment. Critics and skeptics for generations, really from the very beginning, have had an unrelenting criticism of the terms and conditions, the laws and the restrictions that are connected with the Sinai Covenant. And Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, he unleashes about this, right? This is just a snapshot of what perhaps maybe you heard in university. Or, or, or maybe the reason that you lost faith is because you had a version of Christianity that said, the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. All 66 books, I got to believe everything in them, I got to do everything in them. And then somebody came along and they showed you some verses of the Old Testament specifically as it related to the Jewish law. And you said, hey, 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 just wait a minute here. What kind of a God would say those kinds of things? Or, or who would ask those kinds of things? Maybe it was the Sinai Covenant, God's arrangement with Israel, 
that caused you to lose faith. And the reason perhaps you lost faith is because you embraced Richard Dawkins or other people's view of this extraordinary covenant that God created with his people. Here's what Richard writes. Hold on, okay, because it gets a little racy. Judaism, originally a tribal cult of a singularly, fiercely unpleasant God, morbidly obsessed with sexual restrictions, with the smell of charred flesh, and he goes on and on and on, criticizing God. And if this is all you read, and, and then somebody pulls, points out a, a verse to you, a verse here, and then another verse over here, of course you're going to walk away thinking, wow, how could anyone take this seriously? Or why would anyone take anything that came from this seriously? And that's why I wanted to stop and talk for a minute because Richard Dawkins and those like him are absolutely wrong when it comes to understanding the Hebrew Bible, the, script, the Jewish Scripture, what we would call the Old Testament. I want to give you an example, just one example, that's found in Leviticus chapter 18. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, right? Leviticus is where the, the majority of the detailed law is found. This is why. If you've ever started, uh, you decide, it's the new year, new me, I'm going to read the whole Bible from beginning to end, and you think, that's what I'm going to do. Has anybody ever, anybody ever done that? Right? You just sort of say, this is going to be it, I'm going to do the whole thing. And, and, and you start, you get into Genesis, you go, ooh, there's creation. That's kind of interesting, a little odd, but amazing. Then there's Abraham, then there's Isaac, and there's Joseph, and there's Pharaoh. What a great story. I love the story of Joseph. And then you turn the page, and you get to Exodus, you go, Boom! Wow! That's a really big budget epic story with God doing all this stuff. Very action-packed. And then you're powering along and you arrive at, Le at Leviticus and you just... Whoop! What just happened? And, and you, you get to numbers and your, your eyebrows are arched right up, right? And you go, what? Oh, here we go. Now we're, we're, now we're in Deuteronomy and didn't we just read all of this in Leviticus and where did the storyline go? And when, when does that get picked up again? And, but this is the detailed covenant that God established with ancient Israel. So anyway, when you get to Leviticus 18, you find 19, plus or minus, depending on how you count them, 19 sexual prohibitions. 19 laws dealing with sexuality. And if that's all you had heard, you'd say, see... Come on, that's why I'm not a religious person. It's certainly why I'm not a Christian, because there goes God, messing with our personal life, getting into the bedroom, right? And it's none of his business, and it's none of your business, and I don't want to have anything to do with that. That's why I wanted to talk about this one specifically. Plus, people are always kind of interested when the preacher talks about sex. Okay, check this part out. All 19 of those prohibitions that we find in Leviticus, all of them were practiced in Egypt. And all 19 were practiced in Canaan. So God has said to the nation, look, I'm, I'm asking you to be different, all right? I want you to look different. I want you to act different. I want you to live different. I want every area of your life to be different because you're my people. But here's the fascinating thing that people overlook. Just glance right over it. And that's why I want to clarify. Today, like right now, today, in every single developed nation in the world, and in most of what we would consider undeveloped or developing nations in the world, today, in every single 
developed nation in the world. 17 of the 19 behaviors prohibited in Leviticus are illegal or frowned upon. 17 out of 19. The point being, the Hebrew people, the law that God gave Moses to give to the nation, the Hebrew people are way, way, way ahead of their time. It would take centuries for surrounding civilizations to finally mature to the point that they realized that the sexual prohibitions that God gave the nation of Israel were the right way to go. The reason that this is the case, because it's because of the theme of these sexual prohibitions. It has to do with, well, you know what? Let me, let me just show you kind of the theme for this whole section. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 6. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations, which seems very reasonable to me. And it seems very reasonable to you. It did not seem reasonable to ancient Egyptians, Canaanites, or the surrounding nations. Let, let me just tell you how way ahead of their time the Hebrew people were, and the law of Moses was, and the Sinai covenant that they believed came from God. They were so far ahead of their time that if you fast forward 1,500 years from the time of Moses, now you're at the time of Jesus. That's about 1,500 years separating the giving of the law and Jesus showing up on planet Earth. Roman civilization slowly has begun to embrace much of these sexual ethics that God gave the Hebrews 1,500 years before. But over in Egypt, 1,500 years after the Hebrews realized incest is a bad idea for lots of reasons, the Egyptian monarchs are still marrying their siblings. It would take another several generations for that behavior to finally be weeded out or walked away from Egyptian civilization. The point being that you can't just fly over the Sinai Covenant from our 21st century perspective and say, oh, wow, that's all so antiquated. All oh, those poor people. How in the world could God be so old-fashioned and narrow-minded? You know what? It's just not that way. I don't want to say that the devil's in the details because that's kind of weird, but the devil's kind of in those details. And when you get down into the details, it's not as simple as just casting Yahweh, the God of the Jews, aside. The Mount Sinai covenant that God established with ancient Israel is a moral and civil code that when understood in its ancient context was brilliant. Every scholar knows and every historian knows that you never ever pull something out of its original ancient context and compare it to things that are going on now in the modern world. Nobody does that. God is like a good father. God always accommodates to our capacity. As a parent, you did this, or, or your parents did this for you. If a five-year-old says, where do babies come from? They get a different answer than when a 15-year-old says, where do babies come from? And that's a different answer from when a medical student says, where do babies come from? And nobody lies, but everybody accommodates to the capacity of their audience. They accommodate to the capacity of their children. In the Sinai Covenant, we see God who has developed a nation, created a nation for a very specific purpose, accommodating to the maturity, the ancient times what they knew and what they don't know. And even with his accommodating that ability, 
his willingness to accommodate, the Sinai covenant is brilliant. It might strike us as unsophisticated and barbaric, but it wasn't. It was superior in every way to the civil, religious, and moral codes of the surrounding nations. Specifically, the the protections offered to the most vulnerable were nothing short of revolutionary. Women were better protected and had more rights. Servants, foreigners, children, they all fared better under the Sinai Covenant than their counterparts did in the surrounding nations. And why, you ask? Why? Because of what we saw last episode. Because the Hebrews from the very beginning believed that there was a single God, not a multitude of gods, a single God who created mankind and womankind in his image, that everyone was born with dignity. The Hebrew people did not worship creation. They were the pinnacle of creation. That set them apart from the very beginning. And it would take centuries for the rest of the world to finally catch up. There are parts of the world today that still haven't caught up to what God said 3,500 years ago. Okay, back to the storyline. After the Sinai covenant, against God's better wishes, Israel, now they're sort of like a nation state, they decided they want to have a king. And so eventually, Israel got herself a whole bunch of kings. God didn't want Israel to have a king because God wanted to rule and treat them well. God wanted them to view him as their king and then rule through judges. But they got themselves a king. Most of Israel's kings were disasters because such is the nature of a king. Such is the nature of someone who holds all the cards and has all the power. You know what? They raise taxes. People don't like taxes. They raise armies. Armies are expensive. And they had multiple wives. Anytime someone has multiple wives, things are going to get complicated. This might be your big takeaway for today. If you have a favorite wife, things won't go well in your life. If you have a favorite wife, things won't go well in your life. So all of a sudden, there were harems, because that's just what kings who flaunt their power and control do. As time went by, with their third king, Israel got something else that all the surrounding nations had. Over and over and over, we find in this epic story of the development of the Hebrew people that Israel would look around. Instead of going eyes up, they would look around, constantly comparing, and they'd say, hey, we want one of those, and we want to be like them. They've got it easier. How come we don't have one of those? Everybody's got one of those. We want one of those. And so they got some kings. And then with their third king, they got what every other nation had. They got themselves a temple. But their temple was different than all the surrounding nations' temples. You know, it wasn't different in the way it looked necessarily. It was kind of built and organized just like a traditional pagan ancient temple. But the Jews did not have one thing that all of the other great temples have. There was no image of the God for whom the temple was built. 
You build a specific temple for a specific God, and as part of the temple, you would have a God vault. In the God vault would be the statue or the image of the God for whom the temple was built. Well, when the Jewish temple had everything uh, any temple would have, they also had a God vault. They called it the Holy of Holies. There was no image in the Holy of Holies because one of the big Ten Commandments was don't create any image of me because I am Yahweh. I am the one and only God. And I cannot be contained in, I cannot be described by, I cannot be narrowed down to, I cannot be reduced into an image. And by the way, I don't live in this house that you just built. I'm the mobile God. And if you don't think I am, just ask Pharaoh, okay? Because I visited him a couple of hundred years ago and they still haven't gotten over it. Because they wanted a temple, they built a temple that had the God vault. But the God vault was empty because there's no image of Yahweh. Interesting little piece of history. In 63 BC, Pompey came, had a few short skirmishes, and they annexed all of Judea and Galilee into the Roman Empire. Boom. When Pompey got there, he was so fascinated to see this God that was such a troublemaker, this God who would not join the pantheon of gods, this God who says, I'm the only God. There are no other gods. The God who basically despised and looked down on even the Roman gods. So Pompey makes his way into the temple, brushes aside the priests, brushes aside the huge curtain dividing the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And he goes right into the Holy of Holies looking for the Jewish God. What does this God even look like? And inside there's just dishes. There's a table. There's some gold. No God. So he's disgusted. And he just, he just left there, walked away, left it all behind. I mean, who has ever heard of a God who doesn't have an image to which God was thinking? You will hear from him shortly. But anyway, we'll keep going. So back to our storyline, starting with Abraham, Moses, Sinai Covenant. Then we get kings, and we get the temple. And then, because the kings were constantly misbehaving, Every once in a while, God would send prophets. Yeah, prophets to warn and to correct the kings. And when you read the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, a great deal of the texts are the rants, the ravings, the writings, the warnings, the illustrations of these prophets. And as you may know, every single one of the prophets is addressing a specific historical context. Every single one of the prophets is addressing something going on primarily with one of the kings. The kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom. But every once in a while, every once in a while, the prophets would look beyond their immediate historical context to a future day when God would do something through the nation of Israel for the nations of the world. And one of the most fascinating illustrations of this is found in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet who wrote about 600 years before the time of Jesus. Much of his prophecy makes sense within its original context. The issues that he was addressing during that particular period of time. But there's one portion that he wrote that was, that was mysterious to the original audience. They read what he wrote and he talked about this 
mysterious suffering servant whose suffering would somehow benefit the nation, which I guess kind of made sense, but somehow his suffering was going to benefit the entire world? And the, the details about this suffering servant, awkward, they kind of conflict with temple worship and, and with the whole temple structure. So I'm going to read for you just a couple of verses from Isaiah chapter 53. As Isaiah looks beyond his immediate context to this ultimate fulfillment of what God had in mind for the nation of Israel. Isaiah 53, starting at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering. And the original audience would go, ooh, yeah, who's he? Who's that? And familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Wait a minute. Person was pierced? He was crushed for our iniquities. Huh? A person paid the price for the penalty for someone else's sins or iniquities? Wait, what? That's what we do with the lambs and the sheep and the goats. That's the, what the whole sacrificial system is about. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. You might also say that we are made right with God. Verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And they're going, no, no, no. The Lord doesn't lay on people the iniquity of us all. The Lord lays on animals as a temporary covering. The iniquity has been laid on him, on a person, a man. The iniquity of the sin of us all. Verse 8, for he was cut off from the land of the living. He died. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. Verse 9, he was assigned a grave. Not only was he, was ki not only was he killed, he was buried with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And then he says this, verse 11, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life. Hold up. Wait a minute. That sounds like he comes back to life. And then be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. Boy, that sounds a lot like the story of Jesus. You should probably go today and read Isaiah chapter 53. The prophet Isaiah predicted in extraordinary precise detail what would eventually be fulfilled about 600 years later. It's something you should consider because over and over in the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish people were reminded that they were a divine means to a divine end. And be, being a means to an end is what makes something meaningful. If you want to live a meaningful life, you have to become a means to an end that is not yourself. That is the meaning of meaningful. And they were a divine means to a divine end. The story of the ancient Hebrews is just absolutely amazing. It's absolutely magnificent. Just we could summarize it this way, okay? God wades into the fray and plays by the rules of the kingdoms of this world in order to usher in a kingdom not of this world. And to sand off the rough edges of God's Old Testament behavior is to miss the mess that he waded into in order to save the story of redemption 
played out to its bloody crucify him, crucify him end. Our Old Testament, the, the Jewish or the Hebrew Bible, is a saga of an ancient people struggling to survive in a world where food was scarce, enemies were real, and death was just a minor infection away. But in spite of that, they clung to Yahweh, and he in turn clung to his nation, careful not to override their freedom with his presence. The entire story is, is gritty, it's powerful, it's history with a divine purpose. It's history with you in mind. It's history with, with us in mind. It's, it's history with the whole world in mind. It was purposeful. A purpose announced by God to Abraham and fulfilled 2,200 years later when a Jewish carpenter discovers that his fiancée was pregnant. And suddenly, the next part of the story, the fulfillment of Isaiah and other prophets would begin. The Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee, he knew the Hebrew Scriptures inside and out. He summarizes it really well when he wrote this letter to some Christians living in the Roman province of Galatia. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the set time had fully come. Don't you love the confidence of that? The order, the planning of that? When God finally got everything and everybody in place. When the set time had fully come. When that man Abraham had become a family that became a nation, that became a kingdom, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman and under the law, the law that God gave to the nation of Israel, the law that played the role of tutor until the lawmaker stepped onto the pages of history. Verse 5, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. The story of the Old Testament, the story of the Jewish people, honestly, it should cause all of us to drop to our knees in gratitude. There is no need to tidy it up. It's not a spiritual guidebook. It is the story of God preparing the world for his Messiah, for your Savior. So, by the second century, the Gentile church who still did not have a Bible of their own. The Gospels were written, they were in circulation, but they had no Bible of their own. The Gentile church quickly adopted the Jewish Scripture as Christian Scripture and began using it in Christian worship. Eventually, they gave it a new name. They began calling it the Old Covenant. The entire volume, everything involved, they would call it the Old Covenant. Later, the Latin term would be used, testament. It became the Old Testament. It would probably have been way better for us to keep calling it the Old Covenant. It's a lot less confusing. And why old? Because the Gentile Christians recognized that God, through Christ, had done something new. God had fulfilled His old covenant promises to His nation and to His people and had established a brand new covenant with the nation, but with all the nations of the world. A covenant that Jesus would say would be instituted and inaugurated in His blood. But still, to this point in history, there's still no Bible. Just a Hebrew text some stories of the accounts in the life of Jesus and 
some correspondence from a very famous church planter to his Gentile congregations around the Mediterranean Rim. And we will pick up the story from there in our next episode of text, which will be on March 7th. February, we'll be keeping with our tradition and dedicating the entire month to the focus on outflow. Out of the, out of, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the life is lived. We intentionally focus on interactions with the world, both locally and internationally. And we're going to dive into this mission and focus specifically on breaking down barriers in February. God, thank you for the way that you have been working history together, that at just the right point, you, you got all the pieces together and you sent us Jesus. Change the world. Change history. Open the doorway for connection with you to anyone to anyone who would follow you, to anyone who would trust you. Today, that's where we all are, once again, asking the question, will I follow? Will I follow you, Jesus? Will I trust you, regardless of what's happening around me? It's the sort of thing that we have to decide to do on a regular basis. I have to choose to be in. Nobody makes me. I have to choose it. I have to choose to trust. I have to live in that trust and behave as you would have. That you would make love uppermost in my mind. That you would cause that question to come to my mind regularly. What does love require of me? So, for each of us personally right now, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would translate this. That you would give us the courage to do what you are specifically speaking to us right now. Because some of these things sound intimidating and hard. Some of these things mean I'm going to have to stop doing some things that I've been doing. To follow you in trust. To follow after you. To seek to become like you. I'm, I'm going to have to change the attitude that I've got to some people around me. And that's hard. Frankly, I don't, I don't really want to do that. It's also hard because I kind of made it public the way I feel about some situations. And now... I might have to change the way I behave in public. God, I pray that you would speak into our heart. Again, give us the courage to do what you are asking us to do. Empower us with the love to live out this calling. That we would love one another just as you have loved us. That the whole world would know that we are your disciples because of how we love. May I May we be known for the love that you have given to us and that we share generously with those around us through our time, our treasure, and our talent. Stir us up. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move again in this time in a way that transforms us, that we might also watch as you transform the culture around us. We trust you. We're going to follow you, Jesus. Thanks. Amen.